presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. We continue today in our subject of testing. I've entitled our series, Testing, Testing, Discovering What God Already Knows About Us. There's no question that God does test us. God never tempts us to do evil. Uh, Temptation comes from a different source. But God does test us. Uh, In testing us, as we've seen, God uh, reveals the genuineness, or not, of our faith that we profess to have in Christ Jesus. Um, Through testing, God challenges challenges us as far as our perseverance is concerned because the strain of testing helps to produce perseverance. Testing serves as a uh, a means that God uses to mature the believer in the faith and, and certainly greater conformity to Christ's image. And successfully, passing God's test brings reward from Him. The, the Bible does indicate that. Of course, the question that uh, usually is foremost in our mind when we face testing is when is this going to be over because we're just ready to uh, to, to get through with it we don't like the inconvenience of testing we don't like the uncertainty of testing we just don't like uh, what very often turns out to be misery that's involved in testing but the Bible does provide a, a definitive answer for when it will be over and that is um, uh, it will be over when God wants it to be over it'll be over when God's pleased to end those tests. Some tests uh, can be very brief as when Jesus asked Philip how the disciples could feed more than 5,000 hungry people and uh, that, that test was over right away. But there are other tests that uh, seem to be sometimes almost unending, as in Joseph's 13 years as a slave in Egypt, or as those years that David spent um, as a fugitive running from Saul. And we've, we've spent some time talking about that. And generally, when we, uh, when we think of testing, we, our tendency is to think of the negative things that come our way, and we're, we're talking about trials, and we talk about uh, dealing with the weaknesses of other people. We talk about God's timetable and all of those things we've discussed um, somewhat at length as we've looked at uh, the characters Joseph and David. But one of the things that we often I think we we fail to think about when we think about God's testing is uh, is the blessings that God brings into our lives, the things that God uh, does for us that we consider as really good stuff, and uh, that those things themselves can be a test. And so today we're going to look at another character in the Old Testament, and that's King Hezekiah, who turned out to be a very arrogant king. Now, when he began, he began in great humility. But when, uh, as time went by and the blessings of God increased, um, rather than responding in continuing humility, he began to respond with pride and God dealt with him about that. So the test that we're looking at today uh, essentially is a life that is filled with God's blessings. 
Um, I suppose another subtitle that we could use for this uh, for this session today is that when everything is not enough, uh, because it just seems like we begin to presume on God's grace at, at times, and we just we just take for granted that it, that God is going to always do this sort of thing, and we begin to forget to thank God for what He's doing. We begin to uh, we we forget to acknowledge Him. So, today we're going to be talking about Hezekiah. Uh, His name means, the Lord is my strength. Just by way of uh, historical background, remember, and we, we saw this a little bit when we in our last session when we were talking about David, the United Monarchy under Saul, David, and Solomon lasted for roughly 120 years. Though Each of those monarchs reigned for approximately 40 years. Uh, that, <clears throat> But then in 931 B.C., when Solomon died, the monarchy divided. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, it looked like was going to just simply take over everything, but as he sought counsel from the elders about how to... Um, his father's his father Solomon's advisors about how to uh, how to rule these people, uh, the Israelites. Um, what happened was that uh, the the elders knew that Solomon had been very very rough on uh, on folks. Uh, there were all sort of building projects during the administration of Solomon. And so as a result, people were constantly being drafted into these things and uh, taxes were high. And uh, so Rehoboam, Solomon's son, uh, asked the elders, what, what do you think? And they, they all to a man said, look, what you need to do is you need to ease up on folks. If you will be a servant to these people, they'll serve you the rest of their life. <clears throat> and so uh, Rehoboam considered that, but then talked with some of his younger buddies, uh, a different group that he ran with, and they said, look, don't listen to those old guys. What you need to do is you need to let these people know that as far as your dad was concerned, he he didn't hold a candle to what you're going to be like. That uh, that his uh, that 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 your little finger is more powerful than his thigh was, and uh, and you need to come down hard on these folks. And as a result of that, the kingdom split, and God uh, uh, there became two kingdoms. The northern kingdom retained the name of Israel. It was composed of ten tribes, and the southern kingdom uh, kept the name of Judah, which was the largest of the two tribes that comprised that kingdom. The other kingdom, uh, I'm sorry, the other tribe was that of Benjamin, and the reason for that was because that was the uh, piece of real estate in which the city of Jerusalem was located. So that happened in nine uh, in nine thirty one when the uh, when it when it split. In fact, the uh, the the first king of uh, of the northern kingdom, Israel, his name was Jeroboam, and he recognized that because of the constraints of the Mosaic law, that the males all males were to go to Jerusalem three times a year uh, to worship. Um, he realized that if that happened, that probably uh, 
there would be a uh, there would be a reconciliation and the the kingdom would become united again as a result of that what Jeroboam did was he set up uh, 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 two different places of worship one in Bethel and one way up in the northern part of Israel uh, in the area of Dan and as a result of that uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, went deeper and deeper into idolatry until finally in 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire came in and captured the uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and took them captive and uh, and brought in a lot of uh, a lot of people from throughout their empire. In fact, that's uh, that's where the Samaritans came from. As uh, as the Israelites were taken out and distributed all over the Assyrian Empire, and then people from all over the Assyrian Empire were brought in to uh, to the vacated Israel. And um, and they became eventually the Samaritans. In fact, if you look in your notes there, the passage from Second Kings chapter seventeen, it says, and this is speaking of the northern kingdom of Israel. It says they forsook all the commands of the Lord their God, and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves, and an Asherah pole. The Asherah pole was the uh, female consort. They bowed down to all the starry host, and they worshipped Baal. Baal was generally an agricultural god and a fertility god. It says, They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. So the Lord... Excuse me. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from His presence. That was in 722. When the, in fact, uh, it was uh, three years before that, and we'll see this in a few minutes. Uh, when the Assyrians laid siege to uh, Samaria, which was the capital city of uh, of Israel, and and three years later, the uh, the. Uh, the whole northern kingdom uh, fell as a result of that. Now, why are we talking about that? Uh, since Hezekiah was a king of a king of the southern kingdom of Judah, well, the reason for that is that when all of this happened, Hezekiah was still alive. He was an eyewitness to the things that were going on in the uh, in the north. Uh, there had been uh, there had been times of reformation there in the southern kingdom. Uh, there had been no reformation that had gone on in the northern kingdom. In fact, every king who ever served, who ever reigned in the northern kingdom, is called in the scriptures uh, an evil ruler. Whereas in the southern kingdom, there were there were some wicked rulers, no doubt, but there were also some very, some good ones who uh, who who genuinely loved God. <clears throat> Hezekiah was the son of Ahaz. Uh, Ahaz was a very wicked king. In fact, one of the things that happened was that in 722 when the uh, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, uh, of course, 
once they've done that, Judah is right on the border of Israel. And so they began to look like it was going, they were going to take over. And what happened was that Ahaz made some arrangements with the Assyrians. And essentially Judah became a vassal state of, uh, of Assyria. Um, Ahaz was a prodigious idolater. He even closed the Lord's uh, temple. Uh, he established idol worship throughout the land. Uh, he was quite a character. And you have to wonder, if, well, if, if Hezekiah turned out to be such a godly king, how in the world did that happen when he had such a wicked dad? Well, remember also that during this time there was a very, another very godly man on the scene. This was the time in which Isaiah lived. And Isaiah had a profound impact in the life of Hezekiah, as we shall see. Let's uh, let's begin our study in Second Kings chapter eighteen. Uh, there in your notes, the time is around seven fifteen B.C. It says Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, was twenty five years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for twenty nine years. Now there had been a previous co regency with uh, with his father Ahaz uh, prior to that. In fact, that's so uh, that's uh, that was very normal for that uh, for that period of time. He did what was right. Speaking of Hezekiah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Remember, that's the uh, that's the, the bronze pole. Jesus even referred to that in John chapter 3 in talking with Nicodemus. This is the brass pole that had the serpent on it and when folks got snake bit in the wilderness. They would look at the uh, they would look at the pole, the serpent on the pole, which was a, a, a symbolic of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. And uh, when they looked, they would live. Look unto Jesus and uh, and live. Well, these folks had taken something that was symbolic and had begun to actually worship it. And so what Hezekiah did when he realized what was going on, he, he said, but we're going to get rid of that too uh, because that's a, that's a problem. It says in verse 5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow Him. He kept the commands of the Lord. I'm sorry, he kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. <clears throat> And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. So here's a guy who early on in his administration, uh, after the co-regency with his father, uh, when he was the one who was now making all of the orders, uh, giving all of the orders, he's the one who's getting rid of all of this idolatry in the land. It's a, it's a new time of, of reformation as far as Hezekiah is concerned. And, um, and, and it says the Lord was with him. goes on to say he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. In other words, he said, "Listen, we're not going to continue to be a vassal state. We're going to we're going to uh, boot him." Uh, and from watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines. So. 
Hezekiah was not only a godly ruler, but he was a, he was a wise military and strategic ruler as well, and was was successful in what he was doing again because uh, because certainly because the Lord was with him and in rest- removing all of these idols, he restored the temple worship, uh, he restored the ministry of the Levites, he reinstituted the Lord's Supper. Um, I'm sorry, not the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Passover. Uh, he reinstituted stated the Levitical priesthood which had essentially been dissolved by his father Ahaz. Um, he just showed fearlessness toward the Assyrians and toward the uh, toward the Philistines. And at that same time, um, he witnessed the fall of, uh, of Israel because of their idolatry and he he certainly seems to be very dependent on the lord as we uh, as we come to the uh, as as we come to this part of scripture it says in king hezekiah's fourth year now that would have been about 725 bc shalmaneser king of assyria marched against samaria that's the capital of the northern kingdom laid siege to it at the end of three years that was in 722 bc as we've already discussed the assyrians took it so samaria was captured in hezekiah's sixth year the year of the king of assyria deported Israel to Assyria. In fact, that's uh, that was at the same time, approximately the same time when when uh, Ahaz was still ruling, and uh, Hezekiah was a co-regent with his father. And so again, Hezekiah is a witness to all of this, and 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 saw that his his father acquiesced to the Assyrians, and and Judah became a vassal state. And now, after after his father Ahaz has died. Then he's he's not only uh, doing all these great things as far as spiritual things are concerned, but he's uh, he's making some strategic moves militarily as well. We continue the story in Second Kings chapter twenty. It's a, now it's around seven o two B.C. It says in those days Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, Remember, O Lord, how I've walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now, that's an interesting prayer, isn't it? What, what do you notice about the attitude of, uh, of Hezekiah at this point? It's not, it's not uh, Lord, have mercy on me. Would you give me some more years to uh, help my people uh, so that we can get through this very difficult time? It's, Remember, O Lord, how I've walked before You faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. It's just it's a reminder. I've done all this stuff and it's like I've done all these things and now you you owe me. You remember the, the Psalm seventy three, it's a Psalm of Asaph where he he is complaining before the Lord and he says, you know, I don't understand what's going on. Uh, all the all the good guys are getting shafted. All the bad guys are getting the gold mine. Everybody else is getting the shaft. 
and then he does a verse in there, and it's 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 in the early part of Psalm seventy three, but he says, "Surely in vain I have kept my hands pure." You get the message? Surely in vain I have kept my hands pure. The idea is, well, I've done all this stuff. I've done the right thing. And look what He's got me. He's got me nothing. It's like, you owe me, Lord. And it sounds a little bit like that's what Hezekiah's attitude is at this point. And it says, before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. And remember how how the Lord defended the city. Uh, the Assyrians, when the time came, the Assyrians never even got close enough to put up a siege mound. And what what God did was He apparently sent a plague one night uh, in the form of uh, uh, the angel of the Lord and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And uh, the Assyrians decided it was time to go back home after all of that. But here's here's God's God's decree, and it, it's and it's a promise. He says, "Look, I'm going to heal you. The three days from now, you're going to go up to the temple. You're going to go up there to worship, and uh, I'm going to give you 15 more years, Hezekiah. You can bank on that, and I'm going to defend this city." Then Isaiah said, "Prepare a poultice of figs," and they did so and applied it to the boil. And he recovered. Hezekiah had asked Isaiah, now notice this, this is really important. Think about again, think about what God has promised. I'm going to heal you. Three days from now, you're going up to the temple to worship. I'm going to give you 15 more years of life. Hezekiah had asked Isaiah, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me? and that I will go up to the temple of the Lord on the third day from now. A sign? Isn't God's Word good enough? Isn't God's promise good enough? When God says He's going to do this, isn't that good enough? You need a sign? Isaiah answered, This is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what He's promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or shall it go back ten steps? Now this is a reference to Ahaz, uh, Ahaz's sundial that he had, uh, had made. And uh, would, do, you, do you want the shadow to go forward ten degrees or do you want to go back ten degrees? Well, it's a simple matter for the shadow to go forward ten steps, said Hezekiah. Rather have it go back ten steps. And then the prophet Isaiah called upon the Lord, and the Lord made the shadow go back the ten steps it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz, this sundial. Now, so clearly this is a miracle. You know, uh, 
I'm sure God didn't change the rotation of the earth. How He performed this, I don't know. Was it through some cloud covering, a strange anomaly that made the sun die, that made the shadow go backwards? The Bible just doesn't explain it. But then that's the nature of a miracle. It's uh, it's something that is uh, is really unexplainable. But isn't it interesting that God answers Hezekiah's lack of faith? Because God, God, what? Remember, God has promised. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to heal you. Three days from now, you're going to be able to go up to the temple and worship. And I'm going to give you 15 more years of your life. And and Hezekiah's first question is, well, well, now what? what what's the sign that you're going to heal me? And that three days from now, I'll be able to go up to the temple. Well, if, if you just wait three days, you'll find out what. To... Oh goodness. What's the matter, Hezekiah? Trust the Lord. But I want you to see something, and that is that God's answer to Hezekiah's unbelief or his lack of faith at this point served as the basis for the greatest test that Hezekiah would face. So, uh, let's, uh, let's keep reading. Uh, if you'll if you'll notice again, we're we're still in around 702 BC. It says verse 25 of Second Chronicles 32. It says, "But Hezekiah's heart was proud, and he did not respond to the kindness shown to him. Therefore, the Lord's wrath was on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah repented of the pride of his heart." as did the people of Jerusalem. Therefore, the Lord's wrath did not come upon them during the days of Hezekiah. Now, if you'll notice on the first page of your notes, in the left-hand column, right at the very bottom, uh, we, we get a little insight into... Hezekiah's hindsight after his uh, after he's healed of his uh, malady. It says, uh, notice he says in Isaiah chapter thirty-eight, he says, "Day and night you made an end of me. I cried like a swift or thrush. I moaned like a mourning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked to the heavens. I am troubled, O Lord. Come to my aid." But what can I say? He's spoken to me, and He Himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. You restored me to health and let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. Notice, there's a good reason for a test. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish in Your love. You kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind Your back. So, it seems that Hezekiah had repented of his attitude and, uh, and God had certainly forgiven him. But remember, when God forgives us, that doesn't mean that all of the consequences are done away with. In fact, again, as I mentioned earlier, this unbelief on the part of Hezekiah 
um, really served as the basis for the for really the greatest test that Hezekiah would ever face. Now God had God had provided for Hezekiah. There's no question about that. Uh, he had delivered. Uh, he had he had. Uh, giving him promises about deliverance from illness and from the Assyrians. In other words, from immediate death and from imminent danger from the Assyrians. But also, and God used uh, various means. Uh, he certainly uh, used medicine because uh, he had he had a poultice. He told him to apply a poultice to uh, to the to the part of uh, Hezekiah that was uh, that was giving him the problem. Um, and then there was the mystery that was in. Involved, and that was the sign, the, the shadow uh, going what looked like the wrong way on the sundial. And then certainly God was demonstrating mercy through all of this because Hezekiah was not demonstrating faith. And yet God was, uh, God was being merciful to him. God had a plan and a purpose for Hezekiah's life. And, uh, but God is not through with with. with Testing in uh, in Hezekiah's life. All right. Now notice what happens. So so Hezekiah has been has been made well. The uh, uh, and everything now seems to be going great. He's repented of it of his sin of unbelief. And notice what happens in Second Chronicles thirty two, beginning at verse twenty seven. It says Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made treasuries for his silver and gold, and for his precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of valuables. He also made buildings to store the harvest of grain, new wine and oil, and he made stalls for various kinds of cattle and pens for the flocks. He built villages and acquired great numbers of flocks and herds for God had given him very great riches it was Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet of the Gihon spring and channeled the water down to the west side of the city of David he succeeded in everything he undertook now probably in that passage that that I just read it's easy to understand most of that because we understand that uh, in an agricultural society, uh, your wealth was uh, measured very often in your in livestock terms. But there's also silver and gold mentioned here. But it may be the one part that's a little um, obscure for us is verse 30 where it says it was Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet of the Gihon spring and channeled the water down to the west side of the city of David. Now, what that is a reference to strategic planning on the part of Hezekiah. One of the things that uh, that made Jerusalem a defensible city was that it was set up in the top of a mountain so it was an uphill climb to go up there to try to breach the walls if you were going to attack Jerusalem but Jerusalem had one major problem and that is it had no source of water inside the city walls but there was this spring of uh, the, 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 the Gihon spring which was outside the city walls and uh, and so what uh, what Hezekiah did, knowing that there was this threat from the Assyrians at the time, knowing that that was there, now God's going to defend them and God's going to provide for them. But one of the things that uh, that Hezekiah did was he had a tunnel dug from the Gihon Spring up in 
into the west end of Jerusalem so that you could get to the spring and there would always be a supply of fresh water so that if, if Jerusalem found itself in a siege situation, you could uh, you could still get water. So this is this is great. So notice, and again, the comment that's made here by the uh, chronicler is he succeeded in everything he undertook. So you see, the hand of God's blessing is is upon Hezekiah. There's no question about that. Then in verse 31, okay, now this this goes back to Hezekiah's demand for a sign. But when envoys were sent by the rulers of Babylon, now Babylon at this point is a just a fledgling empire. Assyria is still the dominant empire at this point. It's, remember, it's around 702 B.C. And uh, Babylon doesn't come to the fore until... Uh, uh, a number of decades later. Uh, And we'll see that here in just a minute. It says, But when envoys were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask him, that is, ask Hezekiah, about the miraculous sign that had occurred in the land, what miraculous sign? That shadow going backwards on the sundial. Now remember, this is a, the, the the Babylon was the area from which the Magi came. Magi, we we get our word magic from Magi. They were always interested in things that that sounded like they were related to the occult or some sort of miraculous kind of stuff that was going on. Now clearly, what God had done was not occultic. It was uh, it was divine but the the point is is that that really stirred their interest when uh, uh, when they heard about this miraculous sign and so they uh, envoys were sent to find out uh, about that and notice what it says it says when, when these people came to uh, ask about the miraculous sign that had occurred in the land God left him God left Hezekiah to test him and to know everything that was in his heart. Okay, now, go back to session one. Does this mean that God didn't know what Hezekiah was going to do? Of course not. God is omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. But God had what God did was He, he lifted, as it were, His conscious presence from Hezekiah, and he is going to show Hezekiah that all is not well uh, in him. That is, in Hezekiah himself. Uh, It is interesting that when you look at this passage that we just read, you you see God's grace to Hezekiah. Uh, there is security. He has all kinds of assets. He also has the promise that God is going to defend uh, the land. He certainly has significance because he's made all kinds of accomplishments and done some great strategic uh, planning and carrying out those plans. And of course, there is also, uh, we see God's grace in, in the salvation. Not just the salvation of his soul, that he was a saved man, but that God had promised uh, deliverance uh, to Jerusalem and to the land of Judah uh, as far as the Assyrians were concerned. He would deliver them from that. And what is Hezekiah's response to all of that? Apparently, it's pride. 
because that's what is going to happen next. It says, uh, at that time, Isaiah 39, at that time the king of Babylon sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, his entire armory. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Now notice, when these envoys came to say, we're sorry, we heard you sick, and we're glad you're better, and we brought you a gift, but we want to ask you about this, uh, about this miraculous sign that occurred here. Instead of talking about the miraculous sign, what does the chronicler here tell us, and what does Isaiah tell us that Hezekiah talked about? His whole testimony did not center on the grace and the mercy of God, but it's centered on his economic strength. It's centered on his military might. See, the, the problem was one of pride. How, how in the world do you, do you go, do you respond to the grace of God with pride? You know, the Bible warns us in 1 John chapter 2, it says, "...do not love the world or anything in the world." If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Notice John here writes about three things. The desire to indulge ourselves the desire to possess things, the desire to impress other people. And when you, look at, when you look at this thing with Hezekiah, that's exactly what's going on with him, even in the face of the mercy and the grace that God has shown him. Now, well, what happens? Isaiah 39, verse 3. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, They came to me from Babylon. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, Well, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Again, you see, you see the arrogance here and the pride. God has, has brought him up from the deathbed, has taken away the, the fear of being overrun by the Assyrians, uh, at least in, in a promise form, he, he, he's taken that away. And yet the response to that is, my treasures, my pride, my silver, my gold, they saw everything in my palace. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. 
Then Hezekiah said, I'm sorry, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, if that's the message that God gave Isaiah to deliver to me or to you, what do you think our our attitude would be? We say, oh Lord, I've screwed up again. Oh Father, forgive me. Father, oh have mercy on me. But I want you to notice the attitude of Hezekiah because it shows you something about the deceitfulness of sin. After, after God says what He's going to do, verse 8 says, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. Okay, okay. well God, God's right in what He's doing. Yes, God's always right in what He does. And then it says, For He thought, notice He didn't say this, He just thought it. For He thought, There will be peace and security in my lifetime. God says, there's going to come a time when Babylon is going to come back down this way and they're going to take everything they've seen. They're going to clear this place out and in fact, some of your kinfolks, your descendants, they're going to take away and they are going to neuter them and they're going to become servants to the king of Babylon. And remember, that happened. That happened. Uh, you know, we're 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 talking about oh around seven oh two and around that time frame. It was in uh, it was uh, not a hundred years later, but it was in six twelve BC. Whenever uh, whenever the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians, Nineveh fell, and the Babylonian Empire became. Uh, uh, was the ascending empire at the time. And just a few years later, in 605 B.C., was the first time that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came to Judah and to Jerusalem. And it was at that point that they hauled away Daniel and his three friends and they took away a lot of the stuff that was in the temple and in the king's palace. Then in 587, I'm sorry, 597, they came back again. It was at that point that Ezekiel was taken captive and a number of other people were carried off. And uh, each time a, a vassal king was set up and each time that vassal king would ultimately rebel. And then finally, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar had had enough of Jerusalem. And so he and his troops came back one final time and they destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed everything. God says what He means, and He means 
what he says. And yet Hezekiah's response to all of that is, well, what the Lord has spoken is good, but then he thinks, well, at least there's going to be peace and security in my lifetime. In my lifetime. So we see God looking at... I'm sorry, we see Hezekiah looking at God's judgment and the way he looks at it. He says, well, at least it's not going to happen to me. And you see the short-sightedness of this king. You see the return to the whole idea of being self-centered. Sin is just that deceitful. And God shows us these things about ourselves to show us that we haven't arrived yet. We really need to trust in Him. Let's uh, let's let's look at the uh, final thoughts and application. And there are a few other things that I want us to discuss in these in these last minutes that we have together. First of all, notice starting well does not guarantee that one will end well. Even by putting first things first does not ensure that we'll always get it right. Hezekiah started well, but he didn't end well. Hezekiah was putting first things first. He's getting all the spiritual stuff straightened out, destroying all of the idolatry, doing all of the right things, protecting his people, protecting his land, strategic planning, uh, developing his uh, the armaments so he could so the city could be defended. All of those things are praiseworthy, and yet he still just didn't get it right. King Hezekiah understood the dangers of idolatry from observing his father's actions in the captivity of the northern kingdom Israel. And his early efforts at reform began with humility, setting his own heart on seeking God and leading his nation to obey God. But his final comments in the light of God's looming judgment on the nation revealed the egocentric, pass-the-buck kind of arrogance that he had developed even while experiencing God's grace and mercy. You know, the, the Bible talks about this, and Hezekiah should have known this, because uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God gives a warning to His people through Moses. And He says, uh, beginning at verse 11, and I, I'm, I'm just going to read this. It's a... Not a real long passage, but I just want to read to the end of the chapter. Deuteronomy 8.11. This is not in your notes, so you just follow along if you like. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers didn't know that He might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. 
Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it's He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. What a stern warning. What a stern warning. Hezekiah should have known that. And we, living at this time, should know it as well as the people of God. Secondly, uh, notice also that success in a worthwhile endeavor often evokes the praise of onlookers. The greater the success, the greater the applause. I used to uh, tell uh, our son Adam, he was, uh, he was a tennis player uh, in high school and uh, was actually the, the first seed for, for a while. But, uh, you know, it's, it's real cocky when you get in a position like that. And I told him, I said, son, I said, don't believe your press clippings. I said, there's always a faster gun in town. There's always somebody with more skill with a racket. Truth is, you've you, you got to maintain a humble attitude. The greater the success, the greater the applause. There's a, uh, there's a real danger in believing everything that our supporters tell us. They mean well. They want to encourage us. But we need to remember, you know, it's like... It's like when somebody gets up and, and sings a special in church or, the, or a preacher has a, has a particularly inspiring sermon and people begin to come around those folks after, afterward and say, oh, that was just wonderful, wonderful. So, so. And it's great to say thank you. I really appreciate that. You're very kind to say that. But at the same time, we need to say to ourselves and say to the Lord, Lord, the reason that this turned out as well as it did was because of Your great grace and mercy. I could not have done this on my own. You're the one who gave me the voice. You're the one who gave me the mind that You've given me. See, we need to be real, really careful. It's, it's such an insidious kind of thing to happen. Here's some questions to think about. Did, did, did Hezekiah's initial success go to his head? In his prayer for healing during what was supposed to be a terminal illness, he, he said this to God, Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before You faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in Your eyes. And those things were true. He had been faithful. He had done what was right and good in the eyes of the Lord. But did Hezekiah think that because of that, God owed him something? The only thing that God owes us is a one-way ticket to the pit. And in His mercy, through faith in Christ, that trip is canceled because Jesus took all of our all of our hell and all of our judgment on the cross if we're trusting in Him. Was Hezekiah's faith faltering after God's 
specifically promised to heal him? You know, because Hezekiah asked Isaiah, well, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me? Well, why do you need a sign? God promised He's going to heal you. Well, what's the sign that I'll be able to go up to the temple after three days and worship? Well, why isn't God's promise enough for you? Did Hezekiah's request for a sign mean that God's promise was insufficient for his faith? You know, the, the, the years after, after God disabled the Assyrian threat were relatively peaceful years. And during that time, Hezekiah's wealth increased dramatically and so did the notoriety about God's great signs. And it may well be, and I think it did, that all of these factors contributed to Hezekiah's foolish, foolish, foolish arrogance. It's it's interesting to note that, and this this is not part of your notes, but I'll just uh, I'll just mention it uh, as well in passing. God did give Hezekiah another fifteen years. He he died around six eighty seven somewhere along about about there. Uh, but during uh, one of the things that had concerned uh, Hezekiah was that he had no heir. And during these last 15 years that God gave him, God gave him an heir. A son was born to him. Hezekiah fathered um, someone whom they named Manasseh. It was traditionally, according to tradition, Manasseh is the one who killed Isaiah. Manasseh in the Bible is recorded as the most wicked king that Judah ever had. Now, God ultimately brought Manasseh to repentance and brought him back around, so I want to be sure we're clear on that. But Manasseh was just a despicable person for so long. It's just... We just have to be careful. Uh, Notice also, as God promised, the Babylonians did return in less than a hundred years and take the nation's wealth and people to Babylon. Hezekiah died around 687. Uh, Assyria was defeated in 612 by the Babylonians. And shortly thereafter, the Babylonian conquest of Judah occurred in 605, again in 597, and ultimately and finally in 586 when the city was destroyed. I guess the thing that we ought to ask ourselves is, are we so self-absorbed that we care only for ourselves? Well, at least it's not going to happen during my lifetime. Are we so self-absorbed that we care only for ourselves? What will become of our posterity? When God tests us with blessings and success and prosperity, we need to be careful not to misread the test results. Because success and prosperity are not always a sign of God's approval. Just because we're succeeding, just because we're prosperous, doesn't mean that God approves of our life. 
I, I think that's that's borne out in the in the New Testament as well. Remember in John chapter nine, you, you got the guy who's born blind who's sitting at the temple, and Jesus and his disciples walk by, and what is their question? Hey, Lord, uh, who sinned, this guy or uh, or his uh, his parents that he was born blind? In other words, this is a blind guy. Obviously, he's done something wrong, or this wouldn't have happened to him. And Jesus' response was, hey, you're wrong. He didn't sin in utero. Or it wasn't because something his parents did that he was born this way. This is so that the the glory of God can be revealed. And and you see the same thing in uh, the opposite side of the coin, I guess I should say, in Luke chapter 18 with uh, with the rich young ruler. Remember, he comes to Jesus and wants to follow Jesus, and uh, Jesus asks him some questions. Oh, yeah, I've kept all those command. I've kept all the commands of Moses. And Jesus said, "Well, there's only one thing left for you to do." Then he said, "You need to you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then come and follow me." And he says, "the the guy went away sorrowing." And at that point. Jesus spoke to His disciples and He said, it is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And do you remember the disciples' response? Their response was, well then, who can be saved? In other words, the fact that the blessing, this guy was prosperous and everything seemed to be coming up roses for him and he was doing so great, it was clear to them that that was the blessing of the Lord. Well, yeah, it was blessing all right, but it didn't mean God approved of his lifestyle. And of course, the guy had not kept all the commandments of the Lord because the last one is, you shall not covet. And uh, another one in the in the in the first four is that you shall have no other gods before you, and that money in this guy's life had become a god doing. Success and prosperity are not always a sign of God's approval. I guess the question for us is: Are we grateful? Are we walking humbly before our sovereign God? You know, we. It's really easy to take God's provision for granted. I mean, just and some of you are going to think that I guess I'm I'm being silly, but I'm not trying to be. But but do you ever say thank you, Father, whenever you whenever you take a hot shower that you've got that you've got hot water and the the water heater's working? Do you do you ever say thank you? For that, so that's that's silly. I'm I'm paying for the electricity or the gas to to heat the water, and I'm uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm paying for the water. So, yeah, but where do you get the money to do that? It's the it's the Lord who gives you the power to get wealth. This time of year, do you ever ever say thank you, Father, for the, that the air conditioner's working? Do you ever say thank you for the trash pickup? So, well, I'm paying taxes to do that. Well, yes, I know it. So am I. But the truth is, is that can you imagine what life would be like if those guys, those people didn't come around once a week and pick up the trash? In fact, when some sort of uh, 
hurricane, a tornado comes through and things are so bad that nothing can be picked up for about two weeks. Remember how the trash just piles up and there's an awful stench because of that? See, those are things we take for granted. I I know they, they sound like silly things. The electricity. The, the trials that we have. It's hard to say thank you for the trials, but that's where the growth takes place. Do we ever say thank you for the irregular friends and the irregular relatives that we have? You know, the people that we really want to avoid. Folks, we just don't want to be around because it's, it's no fun to be around them. They make us feel weird. We don't know how to respond to them. And it's just easier to stay away from them. But do we ever say, Father, I thank You for this person and I thank You for bringing this person into my life. I'm not sure what You're doing in my life uh, other than I seem to stay frustrated a lot. But you know, God uses those things and we just take it for granted. If you, do you have a pet? Do you have a dog or a cat? When you're, when you're putting their food in the bowl, do you ever say, Father, thank You for providing the, the means to, to feed these animals. These little animals bring me such great joy. And You use them to uh, provide companionship and just fun to just have somebody around uh, a cold nose to, and somebody, some, something to pet and just kind of love on. But that's God providing that. I suppose the point of all of this is that life's not about me. Life's not about you. It's not about what we can afford. It's not about what we can do. It's not about all the blessings that God has brought into our lives. Life is really about Christ because He's the giver. And sometimes it's it's easy to focus more on gifts than it is on the giver. And we need to be careful about that. We need to be careful that God's blessings can serve as a test in our life. And we need to be careful when everything is just not enough. Father, thank You so much for Your grace and Your mercy and Your kindness and Your love. Lord, we admit readily that we have sinned because we take so many things for granted. You are so gracious and You are so merciful to us. You've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Your Son. And You've given us so much more than that. And our tendency is just to take it for granted. Oh God, help us. Help us not to make the mistake that Hezekiah made. We thank You for his life. And we thank You that he started well. We thank You that for the truth of Your Word that he got sidetracked. Help us, Lord, not to get sidetracked. Help us when we face the tests of life that we might learn more about ourselves and about our tendency to go our own way and that we might learn about Your faithfulness and Your love for us and Your determination to bring us Your way. Lord, thank You.
Thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. Thank You most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ who exemplifies that grace and mercy. Thank You that He ever lives today making intercession for us. And thank You for the Spirit of God who lives within us, constantly reaffirming to us Your great love for us and also pricking our conscience when we do the wrong things. Lord, help us to be sensitive to the Spirit of God. Help us to be thankful for all of the things, even the little simple and silly kind of things in life. We praise You through Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.